Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you all today. We are uh, in a series through the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, you want to take those out. We're going to be in John chapter 2. We finally made it to chapter 2. Here we are. And uh, in the fifth week of our series through the Gospel of John. And today we're talking about the world premiere. The world premiere. You know, most of us probably have a, a few shows that we enjoy watching. Maybe it's on TV or on your favorite streaming platform, whatever that might be. Some of you like dramas, some of you like comedies, some of you like that so-called reality TV. Who knows? Who knows what you like? But with all of these shows and more, there's one thing they all have in common, and, and it's this. At some point, they started out as a pilot. A pilot is a single episode of a future TV series that's produced by some studio executives and, and uh, presented to potential audiences. And, and the pilot shows what the show will look like. And it's made in an effort to get the approval to make more of those shows. You know, uh, many years ago, I was walking through what is now the old Gateway Mall. It's all torn down and different now, but I was walking through that mall, and I was approached by a person carrying a clipboard, and they invited me to come to a preview audience to view some television pilots. And I was to receive the gigantic sum of $5, and they told me there'd be some free food there if I stayed for an hour. And so I said, sure, why not? And I went. And I was ushered down this kind of obscure hallway in the back of the mall into this bare room, kind of an old storeroom or something. And there were a few tables along the wall with some snacks of various types. And there was a couple of big old TVs on stands there. And uh, they invited me to take a seat. There was probably a dozen of us or so that had been roped into this thing who had been wandering out in the mall. And so they were there and, and the person with the clipboard stood up and they gave us some basic instructions about how to fill out these papers, about how we were to review the shows that we were about to preview. And then for you know about the next hour, a little less than an hour, we watched three different pilots of potential TV sitcoms. And I distinctly remember when the third one was done and the lights came back on, I thought to myself, there's an hour of my life that I will never get back. <laughs> All three shows were just terrible. They stunk. They weren't funny. To my knowledge, none of them ever made it from the, the back room of that mall in Springfield, Oregon, onto a premiere on a, a network. Well, I bring all of this up to give us a common frame of reference to make this point. How something starts, whether it be a television show or a political movement or a popular cause of some sort or even a religion, how it starts sets the stage for the whole life of that thing. And so as we come to chapter two in the Gospel of John, I want you to think about this. We are witnessing the world premiere of Jesus's public ministry. Beginning with his first miracle, Jesus is setting the stage for what his ministry and his mission are all about. 
He has called his first five disciples. We met, saw that in chapter one. And now he is attending a wedding feast in Cana, a small town about nine miles from his hometown of Nazareth. And that's where we're going to pick up the, the narrative in the Gospel of John today. And so I'd like for you to read this with me. The words are going to be on the screen. It's somewhat lengthy, but I want us to read it together so it really gets into our, our minds today. So John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen, the word of God. Now, before we get further into the text, I wanna just briefly review where we've been. So far, we have met John the Apostle. He's the author of this gospel that we're exploring together. He's writing this gospel late in his life, probably some 50 to 60 years after he experienced these events uh, for the first, at first hand with Jesus. John was a witness to Jesus' life and, and activities. He was present at the world premiere of Jesus' public ministry. He saw the signs and the miracles. He heard the amazing words. He walked and he talked and he traveled with Jesus for three years. He was the only apostle present when Jesus died on the cross. And he was one of the first to see the resurrected Lord. And now... <clears throat> the end of, near the end of this gospel uh, 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 the, of John, he makes his thesis statement. We've looked at this every week so far, and we'll probably continue to look at it, because it, it states his purpose for writing everything down in this gospel, and it's in John 20, verse 31, and it says, these are written, this whole book, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John says, this is what it's all about. This is what I've spent all my time putting down on parchment, passing on to you now that I'm an old man. In chapter one, John introduced us to Jesus as the word, as the light 
as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And so we could say that he begins by, in chapter 1, building Jesus' resume, getting him ready for his world premiere. Well, then we met a second guy named John. Remember him, John the baptizer. And he came to prepare the way for Jesus, to, to ready people, to receive the Messiah. And he is the first to introduce Jesus as the Lamb of God. That's a prophetic title that points to the sacrifice that Jesus will make for all of mankind. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, statements and claims like these made by John the baptizer and by John the apostle, statements like these require some kind of response. It's not enough just for us to read this. What is our response? Because these are big claims that demand some sort of action and attention on our behalf. And so, as we get into our text for today where the Apostle John uh, shares what he calls the first sign in, in verse 11. He says, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is the first of seven great signs in John's gospel that we're going to explore as we continue working through this book. And you know, signs... Signs are important, aren't they? They demand a response. When we see a sign, no matter what kind of sign it is, we have to decide, hmm, do I believe what that sign says? What will I do with what that sign says? For instance, signs represent things, don't they? Think about traffic signs, right? Traffic signs, they represent various actions from, hey, no parking here, to yielding, to stopping. A green traffic light is a sign telling the driver to proceed through the intersection. And so John is telling us to examine the event. This is an event, a sign with a deeper meaning. There is a message to this sign. This is the first sign that Jesus performs. Verse 11 tells us that this sign revealed, or the word made manifest, that means to be made known, uh, kind of like pulling back the curtain. Ta-da! This first sign reveals Jesus' glory. The sign unveils Jesus to our eyes so that we might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And the sign has its intended effect. Because we noticed in verse 11 that it says, the disciples believed in him. They saw that sign. They were witnesses to the world premiere of Jesus and they believed. What does that mean, that they believed? It means they put their faith, their confidence, their trust in Jesus and they began following him toward eternity. They left behind their families and their businesses and their life to follow this obscure itinerant preacher who came out of nowhere because they recognized there's something significant here. And that is our big idea for today. Jesus' works always point people toward belief, toward obedience, and toward eternity 
with him. Let's even read that together. Jesus' works always point his people toward belief, toward obedience, and toward eternity with him. And so with these things in mind, let's proceed with a a closer examination of this first of Jesus' signs, the premiere of Jesus' ministry. Now, in Jesus' day, the first century AD, weddings were a huge deal. It wasn't just like a, a Saturday thing where you show up for an hour and then hang around for a couple of hours, maybe at a reception, and then you're done, right? Weddings in Jesus' culture were important, and they could last for days, even up to a week long. The favorite day to get married was either Sunday or Monday, so that they could celebrate the entire week before their Sabbath began on Friday night into Saturday of the following week. And so in their culture, the groom's family paid for the whole shebang, all right? So how big and how well the guests at the wedding were treated reflected on the groom's social standing and his ability to support his new bride. And since all of these people were traveling, they ended up staying with the new bride and groom for that extended period of time. So weddings were very expensive. You think weddings today are expensive? Think about hosting your wedding for a whole week and putting up all of your guests and everything. A bit more expensive than a slice of cake, isn't it? And the guest list had to be carefully managed because they wanted to avoid bankrupting this new couple as they're just getting started. And so in verse 1, John gives us a rather strange timing statement. He says, on the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Third, what, what third day? The third day of what? Well, let's remember that where we just came from, back in chapter 1, John is referring back to what Jesus said to one of those first five disciples that just started following him, a guy by the name of Nathaniel. And, and you remember that Nathaniel was amazed that Jesus knew stuff about him before he even met him. And so back in verse 50... Jesus says to Nathanael, based on his amazement, Jesus says, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Greater things than these. So now John, in his gospel, is connecting the dots for us. And so in essence, he is saying, you know those greater things that Jesus told Nathanael that he would see just a few days ago? Well, three days later, guess what? This is the day. These greater things are about to be revealed. Just a few days after meeting and collecting his new disciples, Jesus brings them to this family wedding in Cana. And we see in verse, the second part of verse one into verse two, that the mother of Jesus was there and Jesus also was invited to the wedding along with his disciples. So John tells us that Jesus' mother, that's Mary, was there. She was there, and and Jesus was invited. This probably means that Mary was there already before Jesus and the guys got to the wedding. Guys are probably going to arrive late anyway, right? A bunch of single guys showing up. They're going to be late. You know that. Mom is already there, 
and she was likely serving at this wedding in some part of way. Maybe, maybe she was part of the bridal party. Maybe she was related, or she was a helper with responsibilities for serving all of these guests. Mary was there. Jesus was invited. And so this brings us to our very first practical application that we can make as we explore this sign. If you're following along on the outline in your program, this is the first declaration that Jesus makes. Through this first sign, Jesus declares, we can ask anything. We can ask anything. Now, think about this for a minute. You've got to admit, this is kind of an unlikely place and situation for the Son of God to begin, to premiere his world ministry. I mean, if he's going to do a miracle to get things rolling, don't you think it would be something big like lightning and earthquakes on cue or something that says, I am the great and powerful and I'm here. But that's not what happens, is it? I mean, could he at least just take a couple of loaves and feed 5,000 people? Well, that's coming. It's coming later, a few chapters from now, all in good time. But for right now, the place that he begins is helping him mom, his mom keep a wedding from becoming embarrassing. Why, why that? Why that? I want you to think about something. It is the good news made known. The good news made known. After all, if, if you were meeting somebody for some, uh, for some reason, let's say a business meeting, and after the introduction, what often happens in that business setting? Well, you probably do something like uh, exchange business cards. Or, or now, uh, nowadays, you can just pull out your phone and share your info just like that to the other person, right? But what's on that card? What, what, what's going across there? Well, it tells the person's business. It, it says things like who you are and what your product is and what your purpose is. It's not the full picture, but it is representative of what you will do and who you really are. And that's, I think, what this wedding feast at Cana is all about. It is Jesus's premiere, and Jesus is ultimately declaring his business. And what, what business is Jesus in? Well, he's saying, first of all, I'm in the grace business. Jesus is in the grace business. Jesus is all about providing for people what they can't provide for themselves. This miracle of turning water into wine is not so great in the big scheme of things, but it is surely a good beginning because in essence, Jesus is posting a sign that says, I'm here to rescue people. Now, what's the situation? Well, it's a, a big, fat Jewish wedding, right? And at some point, the wine runs out, which in a culture of hospitality is not a small thing. This is a huge embarrassment. Now, we don't really know the reasons why the wine ran out. Was it because there was too many uninvited guests? Did somebody not calculate properly? Did the delivery wagon not get there on time? Maybe the donkey had a blowout? Who knows? We don't know the reason, but we do know the consequence, right? The consequence, a whole family is going to be embarrassed. That's the consequence. They're going to be filled with shame. 
because they can't provide for their guests. And what is the solution? Well, the solution occurs to Jesus' mother Mary, first of all. The solution, what better solution is there than to ask Jesus? Ask Jesus. That should work. Ask Jesus. We're out of wine. Jesus, would you help us out? The fact that he does is relaying a simple and yet very profound message. Jesus comes to rescue people. He comes to rescue us from our guilt. He comes to rescue us from our miscalculations. He comes to rescue us from our shame of things going wrong, whether it's our responsibility or not. He comes to rescue people from guilt and shame. That's the business Jesus is in. Now, that's the simple story, but it's not a story without concerns, is it? One concern for us is perhaps the way that Jesus talks to his mother. You see that in verse 3? When the wine ran out, she comes and asks, says to Jesus, hey, we're out of wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what has that to do with me? Almost sounds like he says, not my problem, mom. Take care of it yourself. It's kind of what it sounds like. When the wine ran out, she comes to ask Jesus. Well, Jesus, you're supposed to bring good. You're supposed to bring goodwill to everybody. And we need some goodwill right now. And by the way, some good wine too. We may be troubled because of how he speaks to his mother. If he's so full of compassion, then why does he address her so formally? Woman, what a way to talk to your mom. We might expect something more endearing like mama. Oh, mom. But it's, it's woman. Now, I don't think Jesus is being unkind to his mother. First of all, she's a, a Jewish mom. And if she knew that her son was being unkind or disrespectful, what do you think she'd say? Don't you talk to me like that. That's not what she says. Right? There's a different... Uh, let me give you an example. There's a different time, another time in the Gospels, when Jesus speaks to Mary in this very same way. And you know what it is? It's when he is hanging on the cross, knowing that he will die soon, and he sees his mother standing there at the foot of the cross, Mary. And who is she standing with? John, the very John who wrote this Gospel. And do you remember what she said, what he said to her? He said to her, woman, woman, behold your son. And then to John, he says, hey, buddy, take care of my mama when I'm gone. That's my loose translation. So there is this key to understanding that at his most tender and compassionate moment, he still speaks to his mother with this formality. And then there's this next phrase that bothers some of us sometimes. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Wow, that sounds kind of harsh. You, my mother, are asking me to take care of this little earthly matter. What does this have to do with me? I think, you know, as Jesus is stepping into this new premier role, he has a very specific focus, a clear goal. And that goal is of kingdom work. 
And so when Jesus says to his mother, what does this have to do with me? He, he's not just addressing her formally, but he is in, in, a, in essence kind of distancing himself from earthly obligations. And that is because he has other obligations, higher obligations, heavenly obligations. And then next he says to her, my hour has not yet come. That's a key phrase in the gospel of John. We're going to see it a bunch more as we work through the gospel. That phrase, my hour has not yet come, comes up in chapter 7, it comes up in chapter 8, it comes up in chapter 12 two times, and it comes up in chapter 13. And each time when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, or my hour, he talks about his hour. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about his death. His death by crucifixion. So when he says to mom, what does this have to do with me? He's saying, I'm not obligated to earthly tasks right now. My hour has not yet come. He's not speaking about his concern or his lack of concern about this event for it, or his concern for his mom or her present problem. He's actually speaking about his concern for his father. In other words, I have a mission to complete, and if I bring an earthquake, if I make it too well known what, what, what's going to happen, they're going to come after me, and I won't be able to complete my father's business that I'm here to do. And so Jesus doesn't want to do anything that would undermine the mission of his father, which is the main thing he is here on earth to complete. And so he's really saying, I must do the most important things. The most important things. We can ask anything. We can ask anything. But it must fit into the big picture of Jesus' purpose and mission. So ask. And do so boldly because Scripture tells us to. But ask according to his will and his purpose. And I think Mary clearly understands this. Notice that she doesn't argue with Jesus. She doesn't try to pull rank on Jesus because I'm your mother and I told you to, so fix this. She doesn't try to manipulate him through some sort of emotion. She simply turns to the servants and says, do whatever Jesus says to do. I just picture her doing that and walking off. And it's like, Jesus, there you go. This leads directly to the next practical application that we want to make as we explore this sign, this first sign together. Through this first sign, Jesus declares that we must yield everything. We can ask anything, but we must yield everything. Mary is willing to ask anything, but she's willing also to yield, isn't she? I'll ask for what I want, but I yield to Jesus. Because he knows what is best and what is right. She recognizes that what Jesus knows is best and right is in exact proportion to what is needed. Well, they need some wine. But when he does this miracle, you notice something? It's done almost in secret, isn't it? The master of the feast, the MC of the ceremony, if you will, when he's brought this wine that Jesus changed, it says explicitly in verse 9, he didn't know where it came from. And apparently the guests don't know either. This is a world premiere. And yet hardly anyone 
sees it. Who are the only ones that know? A few servants and his disciples. Those five guys that just started following him. And as a result, those five guys who now must fulfill what they are called to do, they put their full belief and trust in him. So it's like the business card that is exchanged at this point. It's Jesus saying, not so much to the disciples, but to later readers, including us. He's saying, I'm the guy who was prophesied to come. And I will do my father's business. That's the business I'm in, Jesus says. My father's business. It's a family business. Well, what, what would it mean for us today if we were willing to ask anything but yield everything. You know, for some of us, our temptation is to say, you know, hey, we're dealing with the Son of God who can bring down lightning and create earthquakes on demand. We better not trouble him with the little stuff. Oh, Jesus isn't interested in the little things in my life. But I'm reminded of a little verse that later the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 4, 6, where he says, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In what situation? Every situation. In everything. Now, as we do so, it is always with the attitude that we would even see in Jesus himself, who near the end of his life, when he prayed to the Lord, he said, Yet, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. So our role is to be faithful as believers. And guess what, brothers and sisters in Christ? There are no things too small for Jesus. We can ask him anything. We can bring to him our wedding embarrassment. We can bring to him our family embarrassments. We can bring to him our weaknesses and our pain and our troubles and things that we think even are beneath him. Maybe because they're due to our guilt or our shame. And what does Jesus say? Ask me. Ask me anything, but as you do, you must yield everything. Acknowledging that it's my will, not your will. My measure, not your measure. My timing, not your timing. It's the king of heaven who will now take things over when we ask and yield. If we put it into his hands, we must let his hands work. We put it into his hands and we trust his hands. Why would we do that? Because he's not just in the grace business. He's also in the joy business. Jesus is in the joy business. We ask anything and we yield everything. And when we do so in faith and in trust, then we come to realize a third practical application that we can take from this first of Jesus' signs. And that is that Jesus declares that we have been perfectly provided for. Perfectly provided for. 
Now, we've already read the story. We've read the text. We know what's coming next, or as Paul Harvey might say, here's the rest of the story. We already know all that. Jesus provides a great quantity of wine. But I want you to notice a few things in the story here. First of all, notice there are six stone jars there in verse 6. These containers were, as John tells us, for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And what we learn from this world premiere sign is this. Jesus gives a lot of what's needed. Jesus provides in abundance. But it's not just about the quantity of wine. It's also about the quality that's emphasized here. Now, there are a couple of reasons for this. One of the reasons is because in Jewish culture, the provision of wine represented the provision of God's blessing. We see that all through the Old Testament prophets. Now, the, the focus of many of us might be on the master of the feast when he says, uh, hey, usually when people have had too much to drink, they don't care anymore. And you bring out the cheap stuff. But this is the best wine you've brought out. But what I want us to recognize is not just how good the wine is, but where it's coming from. Where does it come from? Let's think about those jars for one, uh, just a moment. Those jars were for purification. All right, the Jews had all kinds of ceremonies. When you came to a meal or into a house, they would have these jars of water sitting there. And you would do ceremonial washings of your hands of your bodies, of your head, and yes, even of your feet. And so isn't it interesting that Jesus takes foot-washing water and he makes the best wine possible. Jesus at his world premiere is saying, you have used this water for external cleansing, but I'm going to give you something that is internal supernatural and blessed. You know, there will be a night in the not so distant future down the road from this wedding when Jesus will say to his disciples as he holds up a cup of wine, he will say this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink it. Why? Because we will be purified by what he ultimately provides. His blood for our souls. His sacrifice for our sins. And it is the eternal purification that is being signaled and signified. So that God's people would not just be hoping for something eternal... And friends, our focus too must be on what is in internal and changing and lasting, not just on the externals. If Jesus is just your magic genie and you rub the lamp to ask for free stuff, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. If Jesus is just your heavenly vending machine and you put in your dollar and you hit the right button and out pops your favorite candy, that's not the Jesus of Scripture. Our focus must be on what Jesus wants to do in our lives, not just externally, but internally. Not just, what have you provided for me lately, Jesus? But Jesus, 
thank you for changing me from the inside out. Even in a fallen world, God's business is joy. Why can we trust him to do that business for us? Because ultimately, guess what? Not only is Jesus in the grace business, and not only in the joy business, but he is in the wedding business. This all starts at a wedding, doesn't it? But Jesus, did you know that, is in the wedding business? This world premiere sign helps us to recognize this. But what we might not recognize is what John is doing for these first century Jews who are going to be reading his gospel just a bit later. See, we have all of the track record of 2,000 years to go back and look at this. But this was new and fresh for them. And so when they read this story for the first time, they see that Jesus is providing very fine wine. Well, that reference doesn't really hit us like it would have hit those first century readers. Because they would have been clued in to what the prophet Isaiah would have said. It would be echoing in their ears of any faithful Jew. In Isaiah chapter 25, the prophet Isaiah is talking about a great hardship that will come upon the people of God because of their rebellion and their hard hearts. But guess what? Isaiah says, then God will rescue you. There will be a Messiah. And what will mark him? What will be the sign of the Messiah. Listen to this from Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of what? Well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well-refined. What was the kind of wine that Jesus made at the wedding feast? The very best. Well-refined, well-aged do you see what's happening here? 700 and some years before Jesus came, Isaiah wrote these words. But guess what? That's not all he says. He doesn't just talk about the one who will come and provide great wine in verse 7 of Isaiah 25, just the next verse. It says, and he will swallow up the mountains, the covering that is cast over all the peoples. He's not just coming, you see, to bring a rich feast with a lot of great wine. He is coming to remove the covering. The covering is a reference to the death shroud. You see, the people were covered with a death shroud because they were dying. Because of their rebellion and their hard hearts towards God. And he says, when the one comes, the Messiah, he will bring this great wine, this great feast, and he will pull back the death shroud that is upon the people. He's going to swallow up death for all people. Well, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. John describes this event in Cana, and Rob, he doesn't talk anything about death. Where are you going with this? Well, I want to take you just a preview. We'll get there in, in a few weeks, but we're going to jump ahead to the fourth chapter of John for just a minute in verse 46 because we read these words. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee. He goes back to the same town where he brought the wine from the water. He came again to Cana where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official 
whose son was ill. And then a few verses later in verse 50, Jesus said to this official, go and your son will live. And so the rest of the story is the official goes on his trip back to his hometown and on the way there, his servants come running out and they come to get him and they say, you're not going to believe it. Your son was miraculously healed. And the official says, when did that happen? And they tell him the exact hour. And he knows that it was happening at the moment that he talked to Jesus when Jesus said, your son will be healed. You see what happened there? Jesus had given life from death. In Cana of Galilee, the very place where he brought the fine wine to his world premiere. But then that's not all that Isaiah spoke about. He doesn't just say that this one will come and, and give much good wine or even that he'll just bring life. It says that he will give life to all people. And here's another important nugget. You know that official that came to Jesus? Who was he? He was not a Jewish official. He was a Roman, a pagan, a centurion. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus of life and freedom and hope. Deliverance from death. It is extended to all people. But then that's not all that Isaiah says. In verse 8 of chapter 25, it says, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away every tear from their faces. Well, we need to wrap this up, but here's something important to know. John is not finished with his story, is he? This is just the premiere, the pilot episode, the first sign. John is going to continue his story throughout his gospel. But the, the final episode, the closing of the story, is not wrapped up even in the gospel of John. It doesn't come until this very same John, the apostle, the last living apostle, when he's an old, old man, receives a vision, a glimpse into the future. We call this the book of Revelation, the very last letter, book in the New Testament. And it's in that book that John writes that at the great consummation, as all the peoples who have believed and who have trusted in Jesus, just like those first five guys in Cana, everybody that's followed since who have believed and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, when they come together, guess where they're going to come together at? A great feast before the Lamb of God, the one that John the Baptist recognized first. Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we're going to come together in this great feast. And you know what kind of feast it is? It is a wedding feast. A wedding feast of the Lamb. And at this great wedding feast, what is going to happen? The people of God, that's us, the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven. The scripture says, adorned as a bride. A bride, because friends, we, the church, are the bride of Christ. And we will be there at our wedding feast 
with our groom, Jesus Christ. And at that point, God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 21. This Jesus, the very Jesus whose world premiere, whose first sign is at a wedding, is in the wedding business. And what he is saying to you and what he's saying to me in this earliest of miracles is, if we ask anything, and if we yield everything of our life to him, then his intention is to perfectly provide everything that we need in this life. And what is it that we need most of all? To be rid of our sin and our shame and our brokenness and to live in hope until that great feast takes place. To walk in grace and to experience the true joy that only Jesus can provide. Will you pray with me? Father, we